namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami. Today is the Maga Puja night, and uh, gathered here in the temple, this uh, beautiful, inspiring display of, uh, of light in the darkness. Um, Full moon lighting up the, the sky outside. This is a, 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 an opportunity to reflect on this particular occasion, uh, this uh, point in the, the Buddhist year, this uh, time of recollecting these particular events and uh, uh, teachings that the Buddha gave and, uh, and how they can be directly useful to us, how they can serve us all these years, all these centuries later, more than 25 centuries after that first Magapuja gathering. So this uh, occasion, the Magapuja, the full moon, um, this commemorates a time, uh, apparently, seemingly uh, very early on in the Buddha's dispensation. And uh, it was the occasion of a spontaneous gathering of 1250 arahants in the bamboo grove in uh, Rajagaha. So uh, the bamboo grove was the very first Buddhist monastery. It was the first place that was uh, dedicated to be a, 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 an ongoing residence for the Buddha and his disciples. Uh, the Velovanna in uh, Rajagaha, and it was uh, offered by King Bimbisara. And it seems that even though you might think, well, how, how come uh, 1,250 arahants gathered together? And also it was uh, a, a gathering that was not prearranged. It was everyone just happened to show up on the full moon night. And uh, one might hear that and think, well, that's a likely story. <laughs> yeah. How is that going to happen? Yeah. How could 1,250 people uh, all uh, arrive at the same place at the same time? Um, and even if they're arahants, uh, you know, and you think, well, maybe they all had psychic powers. It's probably, uh, obviously, it's, it's difficult to, to know, and I don't have the, the psychic powers to discern exactly what was the, the causes, the reasons, the, the conditions behind that, that uh, auspicious and, and awesome gathering uh, all those years ago, because this was, uh, uh, as it's said in Buddhist tradition, this is the, the largest gathering of uh, enlightened disciples of the Buddha that occurred during his whole dispensation during his whole teaching. But uh, if uh, you consider, and this was something that um, uh, Ajahn Pasano, in, in uh, my former co-abbot in, uh, in the States, in the Abhayagiri Monastery, it was his, his own pet theory that uh, I feel has got a lot of merit uh, and is uh, highly likely to be the story behind this, was that because it was very early on in the Buddha's teaching, before he'd established any kind of training rules or uh, any, any vinaya um, 
for his community um, and uh, the the very fact that it was uh, 1250 arahants it uh, uh, according to uh, Ajahn Pasno's reflections and um, deductions this was probably very shortly after the time that the fire sermon was given and those of you who are familiar with the the, uh, the scriptures and the Buddha's teachings the um, the, the fire sermon, the Adita Pariyaya Sutta, this was traditionally the, the third discourse that the Buddha gave, so that the first two were given in the, the deer park in Varanasi, in Benares, uh, the Dhammachaka Sutta, the turning of the wheel, and then the Anatalakana Sutta, the teaching on, on uh, the three characteristics of, of Dukkha, uh, Anicca, uh, Anatta, of uh, of uh, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self, the, this first explanation that the, the Buddha gave on the three characteristics. So those were the first two sermons, according to our, uh, our Buddhist tradition, our Buddhist mythology. And then the third discourse uh, was given to the uh, a thousand uh, former fire-worshipping ascetics who had become the Buddha's disciple. Buddha's disciples, they are uh, they had been uh, followers of the three Kasapa brothers, uh, the fire-worshipping Matitair ascetics. And uh, there's a, a long and beautifully descriptive tale about how the Buddha went and stayed with um, uh, the, uh, the elder Kasapa and then his, um, his students and, and also Kasapa himself eventually got uh, won over to the Buddha's teaching and became his disciples. And each of the three Kasapa brothers had several hundred uh, disciples of their own. Uh, the the sort of big Kasapa had 500 disciples, middle Kasapa had 300, and the little Kasapa had 200. <laughs> it's like big uh, daddy bear, mummy bear, and baby bear. You know. <laughs> they had their, uh, their own collections of disciples, but all of them eventually became the Buddha's uh, uh, disciples, shaved off their matted locks and uh, cast them into the river and became bhikkhus, became uh, monastic disciples of the Buddha. And uh, during the course of giving the fire sermon, the teaching on the uh, analogy of fire, then uh, they all became arahants. So that was also the, the, the largest number of people who became fully enlightened during the course of a single Dhamma talk, you know, a thousand in one, in one go. So that was a remarkable and extraordinarily impactful teaching. So it's likely, it seems likely that uh, this uh, Avada Patimoka, this teaching that the Buddha gave on uh, the foundation of, of discipline and the foundation of the Buddha Sasana as a, an expressing, expression of its essence. This was uh, shortly after that time because along with those thousand uh, bhikkhus who were enlightened during the course of the, the fire sermon, there were also many other disciples that had uh, had uh, sprung up by that time, so uh, this was in the uh, the the full moon time of uh, February March. This uh, early part of the the year, the end of the cold season, the beginning of the hot season, and uh, and so it, it seems likely that after the the Buddha had given that teaching at the Gaya Sisa Gaya Head, then he was on his way to Rajagaha. It settled in the area of Rajagaha, and then uh, probably. Uh, those thousand, uh, those thousand bhikkhus plus uh, a couple of hundred others had uh, gathered around the, the area of Rajagaha in the hills and in the forests in that area. And the full moon night was a natural time for the gathering together of um, 
religious devotees to come to, to meet with their teacher or to come and, and join together for their spiritual observances. And so, uh, because the, the moon was full, then it's likely that uh, uh, people, who, uh, the disciples of the Buddha who were gathered in the area took that opportunity. Oh, well, the, you know, the full moon is coming. Uh, I'm sure the master is likely to be uh, available to, to give teachings. This would be a good opportunity to go and visit him and to, uh, to join together for, the, uh, for a, uh, uh, a full moon observance day and to, to listen to whatever teachings he would like to, to, to give us, to offer. So that feels to me like a, a very likely scenario and that um, uh, in this, this time, probably a, just within the first couple of years after the Buddha's enlightenment, then uh, as the, the moon was, was waxing and growing to its fullness, then you can imagine all of those different uh, monks, the, uh, the, the newly uh, awakened arahants and the early disciples from uh, Sariputta, Moggallana, the Yasa and his friends and the, the five bhikkhus that were uh, enlightened in the, the deer park, plus you know, many, many others who had uh, met the Buddha and listened to his teachings and had awakened. So they had, you know, hearing that he was in the area, they gathered in that same vicinity and then took the opportunity to come together on this uh, auspicious uh, night, the, the full moon night. So even though we might consider, our rational mind might consider it, was, it might be a, a fairly fanciful or unlikely occasion, if you put the pieces together like that, then it, uh, it seems to me anyway quite uh, highly possible that this actually records you know, a, an event of this proportions uh, and it's not a, an exaggeration or just a sort of mythological uh, tale, but uh, it uh, is in all likelihood records you know, a very extraordinary and, and amazing occasion uh, when this, uh, the, uh, all of the, uh, the, the new uh, monastic disciples of the Buddha uh, gathered together and drew close. And then uh, having come together, having uh, met at the bamboo grove, then uh, it's also deeply impressive and interesting uh, to see what the Buddha uh, focused upon, uh, what he chose to talk about and what's recorded from that that gathering, that you know, extraordinary occasion of uh, the coming together of 1,250 enlightened disciples. And what the Buddha did was because uh, he was uh, extraordinarily pragmatic. He was a, um, uh, a very realistic teacher, a very pragmatic, practical teacher. And so that, uh, at, that, uh, at that time, even though these were all enlightened beings and their hearts completely freed from greed, hatred and delusion, you know, the Buddha took the opportunity to, to lay down or to, to spell out the, the fundamentals of how to live in concord and how to give a good example to others. Uh, so in this Ovada Patimoka, the, uh, the uh, statement on the, uh, the exhortation on the discipline, on the, uh, the, this path of, uh, of wholesome, suitable practice for monastics, and the, the Buddha lays out these principles. And the, the, the opening line, Kanti Paramang Tapo Titika, he lays out this, in a way, the basic principle for spiritual training, which is you know, patience is the first element. <laughs> number one, word number one, patience. Kanti, patient endurance. And so you think, well, why is he talking to Arahants about patience? I mean, surely they've, they've uh, got beyond that. 
but also one has to consider that it's not just the um, uh, the, the teaching that is there for those who are, are um, fully enlightened, but it's also clarifying the understanding so that they can uh, develop skillful means and also uh, explain the principles to others in due course. So, uh, just describing, uh, and so when he gives this, this opening element of the teaching, to me it's also, it's describing, uh, in a sense, what it is that they've used to arrive at the realization which they have which they have um, so actualized, that uh, they have come to the fruition of. And saying this is what helped us to arrive at this point of full realization, full liberation, full enlightenment, patient endurance. Uh, and also because they were um, fire-worshipping ascetics in uh, Indian mythology and even uh, in, the, in the past and today, there's a, a strong element of uh, uh, what's called tapas. The, the, uh, a, a yogi or an ascetic is known as a tapasin or a tapasi. Which, uh, and tapas literally means heat. So a, a tapasin is one who is uh, giving their, uh, making efforts to develop psychic heat or spiritual heat. And so tapas is, uh, in a way, a synonym for, for spiritual power or spiritual strength. And in the mythology of the Buddha's time and, and still today, amongst the ascetic yogis, it's considered that the more um, austere practices, the more, uh, say, painful, self-mortifying practices that you endure, the more tapas, the more kind of heat <laughs> you, you generate, and the more, the more tapas you've got, like the more mojo, the more spiritual oomph. <laughs> so like someone like uh, the god Shiva, would be considered the, you know, the ultimate tapasin, the, the ultimate yogi, and one who had you know, awesome spiritual power on, a, on account of that psychic strength. So that, uh, uh, so that, the, that development of tapas would have been a big part of the lives of the majority of those ex-fire worshippers. Yeah? When they were in that, that way of life as, as matted hair ascetics, uh, living uh, under a uh, a strict discipline of self-mortification, self-deprivation, um, and you know, that, that using that practice of, sort of enduring physical pain to develop psychic strength, spiritual strength, that that would be um, uh, you know, the, a language that they would, they would be very familiar with. So the Buddha says, patient endurance is the supreme tapas, kanti paramang tapo titikal. Kanti is the, the greatest uh, tapas, is the greatest uh, austerity. And so that, that uh, he, uh, he, he brings it into, um, in a way, the, the field of his own understanding, his own recognition, so away from the endurance of pain and self-harming, um, self in, a, in a way, and just looking at the, the quality of patience patience uh, uh, to let go of feelings of aversion, feelings of desire, feelings of fear, feelings of restlessness. And essentially the patience to open the heart, open the mind to the actuality of this present moment. To endure, to, to not react to feelings of like, dislike, feelings of attraction, aversion, fear and desire. And instead to, to be patient, to, to let go of reactive patterns and to open the attention to the present moment. So in, in Buddhist practice the, the word patience 
kanti as a paramita, as that which helps to, to carry uh, the heart across from confusion to, to liberation, from bondage to, uh, to freedom, from, uh, from ignorance to, to enlightenment. That kind of patience is not the patience of gritting your teeth and waiting for things to be over. That kind of patience, uh, the patience of kanti, is, is more the patience of letting go of time. It's, a, it's, a, it's very much bound up with the quality of akaliko, the timeless dhamma, akaliko dhamma. Patient, true patience is letting go of time, letting go of the sense of a future. So to be truly patient is, it means you're not waiting for it to be over. <laughs> it's the, the mind which is not waiting for anything, the mind which completely surrenders to the reality of the present. And so the Buddha is saying that this, this surrender to the, to the Dhamma, surrender to the reality of here and now, the uh, Pachupanna Dhamma, the, uh, the timeless Dhamma, the here and now Dhamma, that's the, the, the great austerity, the great tapas. It's not a matter of, of um, say, just the amount of pain you experience or the uh, capacity to stand on one leg for 40 years or, or eat one, you know, one grain of rice a day. You know, that isn't the, the most important tapas, the most you know, crucial or central tapas is just the simple quality of, of patience, of kanti, of uh, you know, learning to, to let go of our reactive patterns, our reactive urges and um, impulses. Uh, interestingly enough, I, I was at this um, Christian Buddhist dialogue a couple of days ago um, with uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury and um, Professor Sato, Geshe Tashi, and um, Venerable Chue Ru, and about 60 other people you know, gathered together in the Buddhist Society and uh, listening to, to His Grace, uh, the Archbishop, talking about um, particularly the Desert Fathers, upon whom he's a, a great expert. It was striking the number of, of uh, things about that, that he quoted, the teachings of the Desert Fathers in the early theologians that uh, match very closely with, with Buddhist practices. And he, uh, he talked about this quality of apath apathia, which is you know, the Greek word. And it sounds a bit like apathy. <laughs> I mean, and the English word apathy, I think, came from it. But in terms of spiritual training, uh, it means the opposite. So apathia in Greek means the capacity not to react to instinctual uh, impulses. The, the capacity not to be blown around by the, the winds of fear and desire, attraction and aversion. So apathy, it doesn't mean to be apathetic. <laughs> it means that the quality of spiritual stability, that quality of, of uh, uh, you know, steadiness and firmness. So it's also interesting in that the opening sentence, the opening lines of, of the Ovada Patimoka, Kanti Paramang Tapoti Tika. So tapas, tapo, is, is about heat. And then the very next phrase is Nibanang Paramang Vadanti Buddha. Nibana is coolness. So you've got, <laughs> he counterpoints heat and coolness so that uh, in a way he, he's sort of picking up your, your, your ideal. Yeah, uh, the ideal for a fire worshiper used to be developing tapas, developing heat, but you know, what I'm really talking about, what I'm encouraging instead is nibbana, <laughs> is coolness. So it's a counterpointing the, the idea of, of, uh, of, uh, of heat, so replacing that image with one of coolness, cooling down, letting the heart be, be cooled, be freed from the reactivity of, of greed, hatred and delusion. 
Nibbanang Paramang Vadanti Buddha. Nibbana is said by, uh, to be the supreme Dhamma. This is what all the Buddhas say. The, uh, you know, the next lines, Nahi Papajito Parupagati Samanohoti Parang Uyehe Tayanto. One who hurts or, or, or harms others, one who abuses others, is not one who can be called a Samana. Not, this is uh, not the qualities of a, a religious seeker, someone who, who takes upon the life of a, of a seeker, of a Samana, of a, a, a monastic, of a renunciate. Uh, it's fundamentally uh, a harmless life. It's one that's based on non-harming. The, uh, the next lines um, that uh, he, uh, he picks up on the sabba papasa akarnang kusala supasampada, the the basic qualities, the feelings of, of good and evil. Sabba papasa, papa is evil or, or that which is harmful, destructive. Sabba papasa akarnang, not doing anything which is which is harmful or evil, destructive. Kusala supasampada, giving rise to that which is wholesome. Sachitta pariyodapanang purifying the heart, etang buddhana sasanang. This is the, the teaching of all the Buddhas. And this is a very, very frequently quoted if you, to, to come up with a, a synopsis of what the Buddha's teaching is. And this occurs not just here in this particular teaching of the Ovada Patimoka, but is found over and over again, different places in the teachings. And if you want to summarize, what is the teaching of all the Buddhas? Uh, you can say well, to refrain from harm, to, to, to do good, to purify the heart. It's extraordinarily simple, painfully simple. This is, uh, in a way, the, the entire training is just encapsulated in that, that uh, simple package. Sabba papasa akarnang, any kind of unwholesome impulse to, to lay that aside. Kusala supasampada, to, to uh, cultivate the good. Sachitta pariyodapanang, to purify the heart. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. So in the, in the Tipitaka, we have the many, many volumes of, of teachings, the huge variety uh, of, uh, of teachings of the suttas, the vinaya, the abhidhamma. But in a essence, we can boil it all down to this, this, this simple nugget, this simple quintessence of, uh, to refrain from, from the unwholesome, to cultivate the wholesome, to purify the heart. This is the the teaching of all the Buddhas. And this is also uh, um, the sequence that is described that is, uh, is particularly <coughs> pointing to uh, the way of training that is characterized throughout the Buddha's teaching. So it's, uh, it's always recognized as being important to, to acknowledge and to attend to that which is uh, obstructive or destructive. To, to not just think in terms of, of uh, making good karma and uh, uh, stressing that which is wholesome. And this is a, a point that Ajahn Chah would, would pick up on and, uh, and emphasize, to uh, elaborate on over and over again. He'd say, you know, people are very keen on making merit by you know, coming to, to the monasteries, making offerings, um, and to, uh, to say, carry out wholesome actions to, to cultivate good karma, to make merit, to, to uh, develop punya. But he says it's not so popular to refrain from making bad karma. <laughs> but oftentimes it's, uh, people try to you know, create enough, enough good karma to outweigh the bad karma they also like to create. <laughs> like sort of offsetting the, 
the the wholesome, uh, the the unwholesome with, with the wholesome, just to, to keep yourself in the spiritually in in the black, you know. Uh, but he said it, it, it over and over again how it's it's in a, in a way it's much more important to uh, learn how to refrain from creating the unwholesome, you know, that uh, rather than than say just creating negative karma and then uh, trying to outweigh it or, or um, uh, su- uh, submerse it in uh, a, a large amount of, of good karma. He says far more helpful is to cultivate not uh, not creating bad karma in the first place. So when we hear these words, sabba papasa akaranang, to not do any evil, you know, we might think you know, evil is a pretty heavy word in English, and you might think, well, I'm not an evil person, I don't do evil. <laughs> but it's also it's talking about the moment-to-moment training, the moment-to-moment experiences that we have, those impulses that are, are, are here within us, the impulses towards laziness, towards greed, towards aversion, you know, selfishness, uh, jealousy, you know, fear, you know, that as those impulses uh, arise, as those, those kind of reflexes act within the heart, to, uh, to recognize them, to know them, and to, to see we have a choice. We have a, uh, the capacity to, to see those and, and to, to learn how to, to choose to do good or to choose to, to do harm. And so rather than thinking of it in terms of a, a kind of spiritual principle that you, you hang up on your wall, and as a as of an overall ideal, it's important to, to see this is advice that we, we take into our heart and it can be the, that, that guide moment to moment. So to notice when the selfish, uh, unwholesome, unskillful, destructive impulses arise, irritation, laziness, fearfulness, jealousy, uh, cruelty, greediness, yeah, there's... Uh, Whatever flickers, whatever uh, motions of those uh, those impulses, rather like you know, the cultivation of apathia, to be ready to notice those, to to see them, and to, to let them go, to to train the to train the heart to to not follow those reactions, to not follow those impulses, and uh, to cultivate the good, to see the opportunities that we have to uh, to rather act out of a place of generosity, act out of a place of harmlessness, to act out of a place of, of uh, say, forgiveness, respectfulness, wisdom and kindness, to cultivate the good so that we, we in each moment we can recognize the opportunities that we have to, to do that. And then the purification of the heart is Again, as Ajahn Chah would, would often point out, is that um, we often talk about uh, good and evil, uh, and uh, we, we recognize that the evil is, is harmful and the good is, is beneficial, but that which is beyond good and evil, we don't really, not- we don't really notice or we don't really hear about or we don't know how to do uh, anything to, to cultivate that. But over and over again, he would point to, uh, it's not just a matter of letting go of the harmful and cultivating the good, but if we really want to fulfill the, the practice, if we really want to fulfill the, the teaching and, and do the best we can with our lives, then it's important to go beyond both good and evil, to, to let go of, of both, and not just to attach to the good and to reject uh, the harmful, but to, to be able to recognize 
uh, both good and evil, if there's a, an identification with that, if there's a, a, a clinging to that, a fear of the bad and a, and a desire for the good, that fear and desire is still going to tie the heart to samsara, tie the heart to the, the cycles of rebirth, endless becoming. And so that the, the purification of the heart also involves that quality of, of, uh, of wisdom, that quality of letting go of, um, uh, of self-centeredness, letting go of, of self-concern. It was also striking in, in some of the things that the Archbishop said that you know, letting go was also <laughs> a major feature of the, uh, the teachings of the Desert Fathers and uh, that when uh, he, he'd been invited to give uh, commentaries uh, firstly on the Metta Sutta, the Buddha's teaching on loving kindness and then on the Heart Sutra in the, from the Northern Buddhist tra- tradition, uh, teachings on emptiness. And uh, when he, I read out the... the um, the English translation of the, uh, of the Metta Sutta to begin with. And in the, the, the translation that the Buddhist society had, um, the, the, in the, the part of the, of the Sutta which talks about, um, you know, this is said to be the sublime abiding in the Amravati translation, um, uh, their Buddhist society translation ha- rendered it as, um, you know, uh, sustaining this mindfulness is said to be the, 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 the supreme abiding. And uh, the very first word he picked up on to comment on was mindfulness. <laughs> and uh, rather than talking about love, um, that, uh, which is the uh, apparent essence or the central element of that metta sutta, he talked about mindfulness and how the, uh, within you know, his own tradition and practice this was seen as sort of the, the crucial element of, of, uh, of you know, the crucial spiritual element to be cultivated. And uh, so the, the Greek word for, for, um, uh, for wakefulness is nipsis, and then it has a partner which is watchfulness, which was nipakos, if I can remember, remembering correctly. And that those are very uh, central elements in that, the, the same uh, sort of dimension of spiritual training as, as described by the, the, the Desert Fathers. And that uh, this is that you know the encouragement is to, to wake up, and he he also quoted a uh, a medieval hymn that begins you know wake up oh, wake up O oh sleeper rise from the dead. <laughs> it reminded me a lot, and my own um, I was asked to to reflect or comment on the things that he'd said, and so that uh, when he quoted that that hymn, I said it reminded me very much of of um, the Buddha's teachings in the in the Dhammapada. Uh, which is, you know, again, like with the Ovada Patimoka, it's uh, verses from the, these teachings uh, that uh, Sumedho is very fond of quoting, which is, mindfulness is the path to the deathless, heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful never die, the heedless are as if dead already. And um, yeah, he, uh, the Archbishop agreed, this was pointing, about the, pointing to exactly the same thing. <laughs> Wake up, O oh sleeper, rise from the dead. Is talking about the um, the negligent, <laughs> the negligent disciple who's who's, who's dozing off, and um, who is as if dead already. And that uh, what we need to do is to to wake up. The mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful never die. 
the heedless are as if dead already. So when the Buddha is talking, giving this advice, in the Avada Patimoka, um, to refrain from all evil, to cultivate the good, to purify the heart, you know, the, the essence of that purification of the heart is, is, wake, is that wakefulness, is that very appamada, uh, the heedfulness uh, quality of, of uh, being mindfully attentive, awake to this present moment. This is the, the, uh, the crucial element, the, the central element that, that makes all the difference. It's also significant in the, uh, in the second part of the chant, um, the, uh, the, the verses where he, Anupavado, Anupagado, Patimokecha, Sangvaro, Patanyutacha, Patasming, Pantancha, Sayanasanang, Adichitecha, Ayogo, Etang, Bhutana, Sasanang. The encouragement in that, particularly these, these, uh, these words, Matanyutacha, Patasming, Pandancha Sayanasanang, it's talking about food and sleep, you know, simple, ordinary, everyday qualities, you know, knowing what's, what's appropriate in taking food, learning what's the right amount of food to eat. Uh, on the one hand, so realizing that he was talking to a, a group of ascetics <laughs> that uh, you know, prone to eating uh, very, very tiny amounts of food or, or very, uh, being um, very... Um, focused on you know, the, uh, relating to food as, a, as an ascetic practice or, or minimizing the amount of food or, or, or har you know, harming the body through uh, not eating enough food. Uh, but also one can read it as learning how not to eat too much food, you know, learning what is the right amount. Matanyuta chapatasming, what's the, the appropriate amount? So learning to, in a sense, normalize our relationship to food. Uh, to, to eating, just learning what the body's needs are and learning to relate to food as a, as a medicine, learning to, to relate to food in, a, in an even-minded, uh, easy, uh, practical way. Pantancha uh, sayanasanang literally means uh, having a secluded place for, 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 for sleeping and sitting. To, uh, if you're going to rest, um, then you know, lie down to rest or take a rest you know, somewhere where it's, uh, it's appropriate. You're not sort of lying down to sleep in public or <laughs> you're not uh, just getting in people's way or, or uh, you're recognizing that uh, you, uh, by, uh, uh, by virtue of the fact that, the, that sleeping is not something that is, a, is something that's uh, seen as appropriate or, 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 or suitable to, to do in public, find a, a quiet place, a, a secluded place, both for your, for your sleeping and also for, for your sitting meditation. Uh, uh, your, the asana to don't meditate out in the middle of the street. Again, because uh, maybe talking to these ascetic yogis, they were uh, of the, the kind of people who would just um, you know, sit and meditate or, or sort of uh, plop themselves down in any kind of uh, place that was of out in the, the public arena or in the middle of the road or uh, you know, out in, the, uh, in the, the, the different sort of thoroughfares or public areas, um, like in a way making a display of themselves, meditating or, or in getting in the way of other people. Or, but just saying, look, you know, think about where you're going to sit to meditate. Think about where you're going to lie down to rest. Is, see how that fits in with uh, the, the common view of things and commonly accepted standards of what's beautiful, what's appropriate, what's suitable. Um, so, 
not just going along with their own pure-hearted intention as, as arahants and people who are not able to, to, uh, to be guided by greed and hatred and delusion, but also just to consider, to reflect what's, what, what's suitable in the eyes of the public, what's, what's commonly held uh, appropriate and beautiful, suitable behavior. You know, don't just go along with your own you know, sort of intentions or, or, or uh, motivations, but consider you know, what fits in with the society, what fits in with the time, the place, the situation that you're in. So giving that kind of um, practical uh, advice about how to to fit in with the uh, the society and the expectations of the you know the people and the world uh, around them. So a very very practical, simple, straightforward uh, uh, advice that the Buddha is giving here. Uh, it was also interesting um, just uh, listening to the the, the dialogues at the with the. Um, the Archbishop and the um, discussions that, that uh, ensued uh, um, at the Buddhist Society. The, um, another of the, the, the things that he, he talked about, which was uh, interesting, was that the relationship to, to metta, and talking about the quality uh, of kindness, that uh, f- from, um, again, he was quoting the Desert Fathers. He, he hardly quoted anybody after about the seventh century. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. He, very much focused on the sort of mystic meditator end of the Christian world. Uh, and so he was quoting the, um, uh, one particular fellow, I think it was called Isaac the Syrian, if I remember correctly, um, and saying how you know, loving kindness is, uh, is to, is, involves a, a kind of an openness to you know, all the different states of mind and all beings, and uh, is a quality of impartiality but uh, he's also saying, uh, quoting uh, the, um, another, another ancient theologian called Maximus, that uh, yeah, don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that, that uh, uh, universal love or um, uh, unconditional love means unconditional affection. So to love every being doesn't mean having affection or fondness for every being. And he said, you know, that's, that, you know, yeah, that's always been recognized as being plainly impossible. <laughs> so that sounded very familiar, since uh, Ilan Forsomedo would always point out uh, that uh, metta doesn't mean love, uh, liking everything. When we talk about having metta for all beings, we're not trying to fabricate a, a state of mind where we like uh, all beings or like you know, all states of mind. And there was a, a remarkably close resonance in that. Because if we really want to be mindful and we really want to, uh, say, not react to the experiences of pleasure and pain, we don't want to be blown around by the, the winds of circumstance and the, the uh, reactions of instinct, then we have to be able to understand them. We have to have a, a, a balanced and uh, unreactive, non-reactive relationship to those feelings of attraction and aversion, fear and desire like and dislike, pleasure and pain. And so uh, it was interesting how that they, that these uh, Desert Fathers had also focused on this quality of, of loving-kindness, or, or what they would call universal love or unconditioned love, is, is not trying to, to like everything, not having affection or fondness for everything, because they equally recognize that's totally impossible. <laughs> you, know, for, you, you can't like all beings. And so uh, 
is extraordinarily similar to the way that uh, Lumpur Sameda would, would point out that metta is more accurately translated as not dwelling in aversion, not, uh, uh, say, allowing the heart to, to settle in a, in a, a quality of, of bias or of uh, partiality. But more, it's a, an openness, or what I like to call a, a radical acceptance. It's an openness of heart that, that, that recognizes everything belongs. The beautiful, the ugly, the pleasant, the painful, the bitter, the sweet. It all belongs. It's all a part of nature. And this is the kind of teaching the Lumpur Sumedho, those of us who've been listening to him for the last 20, 30 plus years, will have heard him describe uh, over and over again. And as I was recounting this, it was interesting to, to see the Archbishop kind of sitting next to me, kind of nodding vigorously. <laughs> yep, <laughs> that's how it is. Uh, that uh, when we, we talk about metta, uh, we're not trying to force ourselves to say the bitter is sweet or that the, there are things in, in, in life that we should be liking. That there are things that are, are painful, they're not likable, like cruelty or selfishness or destructiveness. These are not likable. You know, if you have a migraine or a broken leg or somebody yelling at you, these are not likable. <laughs> these are not sweet, uh, likable uh, experiences. But we can accept them. We can, not, we can not dwell in aversion to them. We can find that place in the heart that recognizes everything belongs. And so if we want to, to actualize these principles that are, are being encouraged in the Ovada Patimoka, that patient endurance, uh, the quality of, um, of uh, say, letting go of the unwholesome, cultivating the wholesome. There needs to be, uh, the very basis of it, this uh, attitude of, of a radical acceptance, in a sense that the beginning point of all goodness, the beginning point of the freeing of the heart from all confusion, freeing the heart from all limitation and dukkha, is establishing the, the attitude of, of kindness, of metta. This is the, the foundation or the ground, the basic attitude that, uh, that welcomes and is ready to, to receive all things, to accept all things, to say, yeah, this is the way it is, <laughs> here it is. And on that basis of, of, of acceptance, that basis of, of loving-kindness, then we can discriminate. And uh, it was interesting also how, uh, I think it was again Isaac the Syrian who said, you know, even demons, you know, that you should be ready to, to love demons, to embrace demons. And uh, again, the, the Archbishop said, you know, it's not as though you're rejoicing in the work that they do. <laughs> you're not uh, applauding them for causing trouble and being mischievous and destructive. You're not uh, pretending that you're approving of what they, they get up to, but you're recognizing that yeah, uh, the, uh, the attitude of fear and hatred is, uh, is only going to cause more difficulty and that we can uh, embrace the demons and, uh, and uh, truly love them in the, in the most real and, and uh, um, profound way, but without uh, applauding what they do. I think that was the, the expression that he used. And that was so similar to so many of the teachings that I, I've heard you know, Lumpur Sumedho and uh, uh, Lumpur Cha give on, on metta over the years. It was quite, quite eerie in a way. <laughs> so, like hearing the, the same kind of phrases being used but with a, a, a different 
context, a different kind of Christian languaging, but uh, talking about the, the same essential attitude. When that, that quality of metta is, uh, is established, when that, that fundamental attitude of, of, of acceptance is present, then we can allow wisdom to operate after that, that uh, quality of acceptance is established. There's a recognition of everything belongs. And then we discriminate. We learn to discern, okay, this is wholesome. This is unwholesome. This is the papa. This is the evil, the destructive. The, the harmful, this is the kusala, this is the, the wholesome, the beautiful, the noble. And that uh, recognizing, uh, recognizing that, uh, you're not grasping the, the good and trying to identify with that or, or rejecting and fearing and hating the harmful, but recognizing you know, there are these different tracks that we can go down, that the, the mind can follow. Uh, if we follow the the, the track of, of harmfulness and destructiveness and painfulness, then that's what you're going to get. If, uh, if we follow the, the papa, the, the akusala track, then pain is going to follow for ourselves and for others. If the, the mind is steered down the kusala track, the wholesome, the, the, the good, the noble, the arya, then what will follow is, is peacefulness and clarity. Uh, beauty will, will be what is experienced. That's how it is. And so that there is a discrimination that's being made, but it's a discrimination based upon a fundamental uh, attunement of the heart to, to the way things are. There's not, uh, it's not based on, on reactivity or fearfulness or, or desire. There's a, a, a balancedness, an integrated quality to that. Uh, another uh, aspect of this is that then when this is firmly established and that quality of wisdom is able to discriminate, then it, at an even more profound level, it it's, helps us to, to see through the very nature of all experience, to, to cultivate that liberating insight, the quality of, of vipassana, seeing clearly. That uh, it's when that, that uh, attitude of acceptance, of impartiality is, is there and that's strengthened and stable so that the, the mind, the attention rests easily in the present moment, is stable and, and uh, non-reactive, not being pulled, not following the impulses of like and dislike, attraction and aversion, approval and disapproval, then that uh, the, that quality of attention is, uh, is stable and strong and fixed. And then we're, we are able to, to see uh, right into, right through the, the very nature of all the things that we, we hear and feel and smell and taste and touch. We're able to receive that all into the heart, to know it as empty, to know it as anicca, dukkha, anatta, to know it and to let it go. And, uh, and so then the and going beyond any kind of impulses of reactivity, we're able to see into the very fabric of all experience. And in the, uh, the reading that we, we had uh, uh, from Ajahn Chah's teachings uh, a little while ago, the, uh, he was using this, this very beautiful and uh, helpful, very tangible image of taking the, the one seat. He said, uh, to establish the mind in 
in vipassana to to develop vipassana meditation imagine yourself in a in a room a room in your own house and there's one seat in the room and then you sit yourself down on that one seat and you don't budge and then having sat yourself on that one seat then you're you're quite at ease to to welcome any other beings that show up whoever shows up in the room whether it's a a feeling in the body, it's a sound that you hear, whether it's a memory, whether it's a, 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 uh, the uh, expectation of, of uh, some event in the future. Whatever it is that comes into the room, whoever, whatever visitors show up, uh, the way that, as Lumpur Chai describes it, it's like you know, they show up, there's nowhere for them to sit down, so they, they only stick around for a while, and then they disappear because there's, there's no place for them. So this is, I found, a really uh, wonderful, excellent, uh, say, um, visualization to employ. It's a, a mental image to employ to, to support that quality of a stable attention in the present moment that, that receives. It's like you're, you're happy for whoever to, to, to show up uh, that wants to in your home. You're, you sit there in your one chair and the doors are open. Whoever wants to show up, they can show up, whether it's a, a memory, a feeling of, of excitement, a feeling of jealousy, a, 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 a sensation in the body, a sound that we hear in the room. Uh, whatever wants to show up, let them show up. They can come in, fine, you know, make yourself at home, <laughs> look around, you know, enjoy yourself. And then they, they come and the, you know, the feeling shows up and they, you know, it's, it's received, it's welcomed, but there's nowhere for it to settle. There's nowhere for it to sit down. There's no fixed uh, place for it, so that it just hovers around for a bit, and then because there's no there's no landing place for it, there's no place to settle, then it it, uh, it moves on and, and heads out. So this is a, a really uh, practical and and uh, direct way that we can uh, say visualize. We can we can create a, a mental image for establishing that clarity of insight. That atti- the attitude of welcoming you know, and the attitude of, of stability. Yeah, that uh, there's a, an open door and that uh, different states and feelings, different perceptions can, can come in. They come in, they do their thing. But because of that stability and, uh, and the fixity of, of wisdom, that mindfulness, that attentiveness, that wakefulness is, is established firmly at the center, then no matter what shows up, whether it's a pain in the body, whether it's a uh, a, a regret or, or an, a fantasy or an exciting memory or a, a plan for the future, whether it's uh, uh, just the different sights and sounds, smells, tastes and, and physical sensations, whatever it might be, they show up, they, they hover around for a while but, and, and without having a, an opportunity to settle because of the, the power, the strength of that, uh, that wise attention that quality of wisdom, then they, they can't sustain themselves. There's no place for them to land, so they only stay around for a while, and they fade. We're able to see and know their, their impermanence, their unsatisfactoriness, and their, their absence of, of selfhood. They're, they're not self, they don't belong, they're not, they're not ours. They're just visitors. This is the, the, the natural quality of the, the, wake, the awakened mind, the, the, the wakeful heart. You know, the, this 
as the attributes of being receptive, the attribute of being stable, the attribute of being unattached, unentangled, clear, so that then these different states of mind, they show up. They're visitors, and like in that, uh, again, this was, this was quoted along the way by one of the, the Buddhist attendees of this, this dialogue, about the, uh, uh, quoting the teaching of the Buddha about the radiant mind, you know, the, the nature of the mind is radiant. Defilements are only visitors. And that this is, a, in a way, that's a, 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 again a clear characterization of this. When, when we take the one seat, when we place wisdom, you know, mindful awareness, wisdom, the satipanya, when satipanya takes that central seat, then the experience of that is brightness, there's a clarity, a radiance. And then the defilements uh, and other sense experiences, they're just visitors. They show up like you know, random guests that, that come in, they, they, they come in, they move around, and then they pass. That's their nature. They're, they're akanduka, they're visitors. They come and they go, that's all. No big thing. So we can take this uh, occasion, the Maga Puja night, uh, to reflect on these principles, to uh, to take this simple verse, you know, the, in the and its and its sort of core message, sabba papasa akaranang kusala supasampada sachitta pariyodapanang. To the re- refrain from all wholesome, uh, refrain from all unwholesomeness, to cultivate the wholesome, purify the heart. We can take that simple nugget, that little package, <laughs> that one you know, essential peace and, and use that to, to guide our, our understanding, guide our life, guide our, our actions, our attitude, moment to moment. And a, an occasion like this, a Marga Puja night, is an opportunity to really allow those teachings, allow that principle into the heart and to recognize, yeah, this is not a complicated thing. This is not a difficult thing. This is, this is simple to understand. And, uh, and take this opportunity as a an encouragement to to take that simple teaching and uh, and apply it to really allow it into the heart and say yeah this is this is what it takes you know, it's it's simple you know, but it's the difficult thing is remembering to apply it <laughs> the difficult thing is is to not get uh, pulled around by the instinctual uh, reactive patterns of like and dislike approval and disapproval you know, the the hard piece of it is remembering. And so we, take, we can take this sort of beautiful moonlit night and the, uh, the observance uh, ceremony, we can use this as an as a opportunity to really make that dedication, to make a commitment, a resolution, to you know, take this teaching, uh, open the door, <laughs> let it in, <laughs> let, uh, let this really be taken to heart and to, to see if we can apply that, to see if we can take that as a standard, to recognize you know, all the, the akusala, the papa, that arises, to know that, to see that, to recognize it, to see the kusala, the wholesome, the beautiful, to recognize it, to know that. And then that which goes beyond it, the, the purification of the heart, to, to cultivate that insight, that liberating insight that knows both the, the wholesome and the unwholesome are not self. That there is a, neither wholesome nor unwholesome really has an owner. They're not who and what we are. They are not 
me or mine. To, to see that capacity is there, this possibility, this potential is, is there. To awaken, to liberate the heart. This is a, the capacity that we have. Sachitta Pariyodapananda, to training of the higher mind. The, the, um, you know, this is a, a capacity. The liberation of the heart is a potential that, that is, is possible. And that uh, we shouldn't take the, uh, the, the habits of self-use and say, oh, I'm too weak, or well, that's all right for them, you know, okay, the, the, the other lot, you know, who've got much more pure-hearted, who haven't got the kind of problems I have, they're younger than me, or they're older than me, or they're, if only I was a different age, or a different gender, or if only I was a monastic, or if only I was a layperson, <laughs> if only I wasn't me, if I was just somebody else, it'd be so much easier. <laughs> This, this is all self-view, that doesn't have to be believed. That's uh, just more visitors showing up. Don't, we don't have to believe it. Don't, don't go along with that. Just to, to recognize we do have the capacity to, to be awakened. The heart has the capacity to be totally freed. This is the, uh, the great blessing. This is the, the wonderful truth that the, the Buddha pointed to. You know, this is the capacity that we all have. So. We can take this occasion, a, a gladdening, inspiring night, to, to allow that in, to, to recognize, yeah, to, to witness that capacity, that potential, and say, yes, this can be done, I can do this, I can. I, uh, at the very foundation of my being, I, I am this, that uh, this is the reality. And it can be realized, it can be known, it can be actualized. And then taking this as an encouragement, a, uh, a kind of support and a, a, uh, a, an opportunity, a precious opportunity to, to bring that into being. We, we can do this. We can, uh, we can t uh, realize the very nature of, our, of the, the Dhamma, the very nature of our own heart. We can do it. It is here. The possibility is, is not far away. So uh, let's uh, take this, this time, this occasion, this... Uh, uh, this moonlight, the moonlit night, to uh, to make that dedication, to make that resolution, and to to uh, to set it alight, to ignite it, to to bring it into being. So I offer these thoughts for consideration. <laughs> Dhamma Dhamma